I want to ask you, if you're a Christian here today, do you ever look at the lives of people who aren't following Jesus? Lives of people around you and kind of think their life looks better or easier or more appealing than yours? If you're a Christian, do you ever kind of find yourself asking whether following Jesus is actually kind of really worth it? If people can seemingly get on well, perfectly well in life without Jesus, actually, is it worth the cost of following him? Or maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. Actually, for you, the kind of format this question takes is, would following Jesus really be worth it for me? You might be wrestling with, actually, my life's pretty good and I see Jesus says this stuff, but actually there'd be some real cost of following him. Is that going to be worth it for me? I suspect that many of us have wrestled with those kinds of questions, maybe ongoingly up. We look around the, world, the place that people around us and we see people who aren't following Jesus who seem to be prosperous and successful and pretty happy. We might then look at our own lives and think, you know, there are some real difficulties. There's some real pain and struggles. Maybe there's real cost in following Jesus. We ask, is it worth it? I've wrestled with those questions sometimes. For me, following Jesus has been and is pretty costly. I'm a guy who loves Jesus, wants to faithfully follow him, and who also happens to be attracted to other guys. I'm gay or same-sex attracted. But I believe what Christians have believed for 2,000 years, that the Bible teaches that sex and marriage are reserved for unions of one man and one woman, and therefore I'm choosing to be single and to be celibate, seeking to try and be faithful to what Jesus teaches Following Jesus is costly for me. There's some big stuff I've given up and some difficult decisions I've had to make. And some people point out to me, well, Andrew, there are people in gay relationships who are happy and they're thriving and they're flourishing. And they say, well, it means they can't possibly be wrong. And surely, actually, your life would be better if you weren't following Jesus. And those people encourage me to question whether it's worth actually following Jesus. In some ways, it could be easy for someone in my situation to look around and think, would life be better if I wasn't following Jesus? That's just one specific example. You may or may not be able to relate to that in kind of different ways, but there are lots of other examples it might hit home for us. It might be for you, actually, this is relevant, still in the topic of relationships, but maybe in a different way. Maybe you are single, and as you look around you at other single people who aren't followers of Jesus, who have the occasional hookup, and it seems to make them happy, it seems to be a fun thing to do in life, and you think... Maybe my life would be better if I wasn't following the teaching of Jesus. Or perhaps you're married, and actually your marriage has proven pretty difficult, and you think, well, other people leave their marriages, start afresh. It seems to work out pretty well. Maybe that's what I should do. Maybe actually life would be better if I wasn't following the teaching of Jesus. Or it could be all areas of life, finance. What if actually I wasn't quite honest in my tax return? Or those things people do that get that bit of extra income, which isn't quite above board, but seems to make life pretty comfortable, looks pretty appealing. Or those people who don't quite always tell the truth and those small lies that just get you ahead at work a bit or maybe just make you look really good to other people. We can all find ourselves asking this question, would my life be better or easier if I wasn't following Jesus? And if you've ever asked those kind of questions, ever had those kind of thoughts, wrestled with those kind of things, I want to reassure you, you're not alone. I have, lots of people have, God's people through the ages have, even people in the Bible have. And actually, we're going to look at one of those today. We're going to look at Psalm 73, the author of which asks exactly these kind of questions, is wrestling with exactly these kinds of questions. The Psalms, if you don't know, are this collection of kind of songs or poems, right at the heart of our English translations of the Bible, in the Old Testament section of the Bible written before Jesus came. And they're kind of these um, words of the people of God talking about the life of faith with all its joys and its sorrows, its ups and its downs, its celebrations and its, and its stresses, And they're kind of examples to us of how we navigate through all the elements of life in relationship with God. 
one of the really great things they teach us is that we, as God's people, can be totally honest about how things are going and how we're feeling and the questions, the wrestlings we have. They give us kind of a, a model for what that looks like and permission almost, actually, to do that in relationship, in communion with God. And that's exactly what happens in Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, we see the wrestling of one person in part of the people of God who's wrestling with these kind of big questions about actually, what about the lives of people around me who aren't following Jesus? Is this really worth it? If you open your Bibles to Psalm 73, you'll see it's titled A Psalm of Asaph. Asaph was a guy around the time of David, and he was the head of the family who would be one of the families responsible for music in the temple. The temple, the tabernacle, the place where God lived with his people, where the Israelites went to worship. He was, in a sense, one of the worship leaders and worship musicians of his day. And this psalm presumably is either written by him or by one of his descendants in his family. But for the sake of ease, we'll kind of talk about Asaph as the psalmist today. And in this psalm, Asaph is giving us an insight into his own wrestlings with Christians very much like the ones I've posed to us today. He looks at the lives of people around him who aren't part of the people of God or aren't seeking to faithfully follow God, and he sees that actually things seem to be going pretty well for them. They're prospering. And he turns to himself, he looks at himself and realises actually life for him is often pretty hard, and it raises these questions for him. It's a real wrestle, a real struggle, a real area of maybe doubt and questioning until something happens which completely changes this for him. He gives us this insight into his journey, into the lessons he learned, and we can learn from seeing that journey as well. So let's read together Psalm 73. It's a fair chunk of scripture, but it's really good actually sometimes for us to sit under and to hear chunks of scripture. So let's read it. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until... I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. In the first half of this psalm, Asaph outlines the problem that he is facing. He actually starts with a key point, which the whole rest of this psalm is going to kind of explain and defend. He says that God is good to Israel, to the pure in heart. Not many people who are perfect. He knows no one's perfect. But those who, through trust in God, are seeking to live his ways and follow his ways. But even though Asaph knows God is good to Israel, good to his people, good to those trusting in them, he says he's almost stumbled. Why is he almost stumbled? Because he's become envious of the people around him, envious of those who are there, the envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In this kind of context, Asaph here is using the word wicked to mean people who don't trust in God and aren't in that seeking to follow his ways. And he looks at them and he sees they often seem happy. They often seem prosperous. They often seem kind of successful. They're enjoying what looks like a good life and it makes him jealous. It gets him thinking, is following God really worth it? This kind of situation almost knocks him off the path, he says. And I think Asaph's situation is kind of very similar to one to which so many of us could relate. And we can just take comfort in that as a starting point. We're not alone if we have those kinds of wanderings, those doubts, those wrestlings. Asaph did. Actually, God knows that, and God allowed that to be enshrined in Scripture. God can cope with our questions, with our wrestlings, with our doubts, with what we're uh, experiencing. This psalm is one of the many psalms that shows us it's really okay to be honest with God about where we're at, about what's going on. And in the first chunk of the psalm, verses 4 to 12, he's explaining to us more what he means about this prosperity of the wicked. He says their lives just seem really easy. He says they're fat, which in this context is a positive thing because they've got lots of food, is what he's saying. They don't experience trouble like other people do. They're proud and they're violent and they're just unashamed of it. They scoff and speak with malice and there's no worry for them when they do that. They're so comfortable and so confident, they openly mock God. As if he knows what's going on down here, as if he cares or he'll get involved, they're thinking. And Asaph recognises that and that is a problem for him. And he says, behold, in verse 12, behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. They just increase in riches. Their lives are easy. They're getting richer and richer, happier and happier, it might seem. It causes him to stumble and to wonder. And of course, Asaph is generalizing. He knows that. We know that. He knows it's not this kind of simple. He's also being honest about life, isn't he? Sometimes good things happen to people who might seem not to be so good. Sometimes the lives of people not following Jesus just look really good, really attractive, really appealing even. We know that. We can all think of places and ways we can see that. When I was reflecting on this, it just made me think of social media. If I scroll through Instagram, there are people who seem to be rich and attractive and have the best cars and the best clothes, the best homes and major holidays. From what you can see often, there's no interest in God, no acknowledgement of God. Social media is the kind of thing that easy makers think, oh, that life looks so attractive. Maybe actually life without Jesus would be better, or maybe Jesus isn't needed for life. Asaph is talking about his world 3,000 years ago, but he could so easily be talking about our world right here, right now in our own context. And he contrasts here the prosperity of the wicked, what he's seeing there, with his own situation. He turns to verse 13, starts talking about his context He's been trying to keep his heart clean. He's been trying to be obedient to God, trying to faithfully follow God. But he says, actually, that's been all in vain. 
It feels like it's all for nothing. He feels like it's being a pointless thing to do because his life is so hard. Notice he says in verse 5 that the wicked are not stricken. And then verse 14, he says, all the day long, I have been stricken. They're not being stricken, but I am, he's saying. What's going on? This is hard, he says. Yeah, maybe we can relate. We look to people around us not following God, and even though they might seem to actively reject him, they might seem to have easy lives. Maybe they aren't stricken with mental health battles, but we are. Maybe they're not at risk of losing their job, but we find we are. Maybe they're not struggling to feed their family, but actually we are. Again, Asas talking about his world. He could so easily talk about our world, about our experience. This is Asas' problem. He says it's almost causing him to stumble as it raises these questions, these thoughts, these doubts. But we get to the midpoint of the psalm. And we move from Asaph's problem to Asaph's answer. You see, he reaches a turning point. He finds an answer. And the second half of the psalm is all about helping us to understand that. He thinks about how do I process this situation? How do I understand it? How do I compute it? And he says it's a wearisome thing, a difficult thing. He feels like he's making no progress until something happens and he reaches that turning point. Something happens, things start to change because Asaph looks up from the circumstances, away from the circumstances, and looks up from down there up to God. He says in verse 17, I went into the sanctuary of God. That's the place where in the Old Testament God dwelt with his people and the people came to worship God. And so he goes there, presumably to worship God with the people of God. And he says, then I discerned the end. When Asaph looks up from his circumstances, looks up to God, suddenly everything changes. His whole perspective is kind of reorientated. He suddenly realizes he needs to focus not just on the now, but also on the then, the things that are coming, getting kind of the big picture, as it were. Looking up from circumstances up to God radically changes things for Asaph. And God gives him a different view on things. Presumably, Asaph was at the sanctuary leading worship, as was one of his roles, or being involved in the music of the worship there. When this happens, that's when he realizes, or he looks up and sees God, and things start to change. Just a helpful challenge for us and reminder, the importance of gathering as we're doing together, worshiping as the people of God, the way that God loves to use that to bless us, to help us, to reorientate us as we're following him. And what Asaph particularly realizes as he beholds God is actually what he's experiencing now isn't the whole story. What he's observing isn't the whole story. And actually, he needs to think bigger picture. So actually, he starts to talk about, actually, well, what's the future like? He talks about the end as in the future of the wicked and the end as in the future of the righteous, of people like him seeking to follow God. And the stark reality is, he says, things don't end well for the wicked. Verse 18, he says, truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. Remember verse 2? Asaph's problem was he was almost stumbling off the path. Well, now actually it's the wicked. They're the ones who truly, he says, are in slippery places. He says they'll be destroyed in a moment, swept away by terrors. In the same way that when you wake up, a dream is just instantly gone. It will feel like that when God acts against the wicked, he says. It's unavoidable here that he's talking about future judgment for those who don't follow God. For us, this can be a really difficult part of this psalm to read and compute and kind of process. It kind of seems like Asaph is delighting in the downfall of the wicked, delighting even in punishment after death. And he's really clear that this is God's doing. He's very kind of explicit about this, that God will do this. And actually, as Christians, you want to take the Bible seriously. We can't avoid the fact that that is a clear and consistent theme in the Scriptures. 
that actually if we persist in rebellion against God, failing to trust him and follow him, actually it doesn't end well for us. It ends in judgment. It ends in punishment. Sometimes people think, well, yeah, in the Old Testament you see that, of course, but Jesus comes and shows us a a nicer, nicer, gentler, easier-going God, as it were. But Jesus says stuff just like this. To be frank, I think Jesus says stuff stronger, actually, even than Asaph is putting it. So ask that rightly, understandably, he raises questions of, well, how do, we, how, how, how do we hold this kind of thing together with knowing that God is a God of love, as revealed in the person of Jesus? Let me share just a few quick thoughts, almost just as a, a quick side note, just to help us, how we might process a difficult thing like this in a psalm like this. A few points that help. One is, it's really important to remember, God's really clear, he never takes delight in the destruction of the wicked. He explicitly states that twice in Ezekiel, the prophet, one of the mouthpieces of God in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 18 and 33. God doesn't take delight in the destruction of the wicked. It's also really important for us to recognize that when God acts and judges, he's just enacting justice. He's doing exactly what is the right thing for him to do. And when we struggle to see that as just, actually, we're forgetting who God really is. We're forgetting quite how awful and terrible our sin, our rebellion against him is. We're forgetting that we're creatures of a creator and therefore instinctively or inherently have obligations to him. Sometimes actually our struggle with this is a challenge to remember who God is. Remember how quite serious sin and rebellion against him is. But also we've got to remember the point that of course that was, that's what God in a sense uh, is the right thing for him to do and yet God makes a way of his own choice so he doesn't have to do that. We can escape from that. God sends his son so he can maintain his justice and he can save and forgive people who justly should be punished. God didn't have to do that. The justice thing, the judgment thing God has to do to be just, so he's a just being, but actually God chooses to enact love and mercy and grace, to take upon himself the price and sending his son to be a sacrifice, take upon himself the price so that actually he can justly forgive and offer welcome into eternity with him. When we read the scriptures, it shouldn't be shocking that God judges and punishes anyone. It should be shocking that God saves anyone. That's actually the surprising thing. We get it the wrong way around so often. The natural right thing for God to do is a just being in response to rebellion against him is to judge and punish. That's what we all deserve. The shockingly wonderful thing is that God, of his own decision, his own initiative, as his own love, makes a way, taking the price upon himself, paying the price himself, so that he can actually offer forgiveness. And a final helpful point is to remember when we're wrestling with how do we hold these truths together is that God doesn't want anyone to experience his judgment and his punishment. The offer is there, but actually it's an offer we have to accept. We're involved in this. We've got to make the choice to respond to the offer that he has made to us. And his desire, his uh, longing is for each one of us to do that. There's some things it's helpful to bear in mind as we read about the theme of God's judgment in a place like Psalm 73. Back to Asaph, what he realizes is because of this future judgment, even if it seems like it's better to be a wicked person right now, actually when he takes the big picture, that's definitely not the case. He's got to think long term. He's got to kind of play the game, as it were. He's got to take the long view, and that's a helpful reminder to us too. God would have us to take the long view. That's certainly a thing we're told to do in the New Testament scriptures. We're meant to live with an eye on eternity, remembering that the now isn't everything. And I think that's a really hard thing, actually, for us in our cultural context to do. We live in a very kind of here and now culture, a very instant culture. We're used to and we kind of expect to be able to get instant or very quick solutions and relief to pain and to problems. 
We expect instant answers. Can we pick up our phones? We Google. We can know almost anything almost instantly. We expect to be able to get anything almost instantly because within 24 hours, something like Prime, we usually can get whatever we want within 24 hours. We live in an instant here and now culture. We're not used to playing the long game, thinking the big picture. But as the people of God, we've got to. The here and now isn't the be all and end all. It isn't the only thing we want to think about. And so one part of Asaph's answer is he realizes actually how other good things might seem externally now, and the big picture and the kind of long term, things don't work out well for the wicked. But he also talks about the end of the righteous. What's his situation, both now actually and also into eternity? And what's striking is there's no promise here of, well, don't worry, because things will get better. Don't worry, circumstances will change. Don't worry, actually, you know, things are going to feel better. That's not at all the answer that Asaph finds. He says, speaking to God in verse 18, I am continually with you. You guide my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Asaph realizes something far more important than the possibility of his circumstances changing. He realizes about his relationship with God, his connection to God. He realizes that the true blessing of following God, the thing that really makes it worthwhile and worth the cost that it can cost us, isn't a happy or easy or comfortable life. The best blessing God can give us, the true blessing, is God himself. He is the pinnacle of blessing. Following God is always worth it because as followers of God, we get God himself. We get intimate relationship with him. So Asaph realizes actually as part of the people of God, he is always with God. That God guides him. God takes him by the hand even. Such a beautiful picture. And then actually when we think long term, when we think to the end, God will receive him into glory, into eternity with him. He's saying the wicked may seem to be having a good time now, but it's not going to last. But actually, even in our difficulties right now, we get intimate connection with God as the people of God. And then, at the end of all things, we get eternity with him. And as Asaph reflects on this, it causes him to think on the kind of supreme value of God. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire but desire besides you. Or we can actually translate that, when I am with you, there is nothing on earth I desire. He's recognizing God himself is the greatest possible blessing we could ever receive, ever enjoy. Now, what God might give us that makes it worth following him is that we get him himself. The greatest blessing is not the gifts we might be given, but the giver himself. And that, I think, is where the real challenge of this psalm to us lies. Do we view God as the greatest possible blessing that we can receive and that he can give us? Would we rather have a happy, comfortable life, or would we rather know deep, soul-satisfying intimacy with our creator God? Do we realise the supreme value of the relationship that we've been welcomed into and brought into? And I've got to be honest with you, I I don't know if I always do recognise that supreme value. I don't know if I always do remember that and hold on to that. It's so easy, I find, to value God's blessings and his gifts more than him as the giver, him as the blessing. But I can also tell you that I've experienced time and time and time again the fact that the gifts, even if they're good things, always let us down. Actually, the giver is the only one who truly satisfies and truly never lets us down. In both good things and bad things, that's been my experience. That things don't fulfill, don't do what we think we will. Might be emotionally dependent friendships, pornography, academic achievements, publishing books, speaking to big large crowds. All these things, I think at times in my life, I've thought that will make me feel really satisfied in life. And every one of them lets you down. 
but God never lets us down. The gifts never truly deliver. They'll always let us down. The giver never does. And that's exactly what Asaph notes as he's heading to a close. In verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You might look at the lives of people around you and think they look happier, they look more comfortable, they look like easier lives than your own. But friends, even if you lost everything, if you lost your health, your money, your family, your friends, if you have God, you are still infinitely richer than anyone around you who does not. Whatever difficulties we face, whatever the cost of following God, Asaph is reminding us it's always worth it because God himself is worth it. And as I was reflecting on this, it kind of reminded me of something in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul, one of the early church leaders, is writing to the church in Philippi. He talks about the supreme worth of Christ. He says in Philippians 3 verse 8, I count everything as loss. He's just listed all the kind of things that he might previously have thought were important and gave him status and worth in the world. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul is an example to us. He's saying, I'm prepared to suffer. I'm prepared to lose all the things that previously mattered to me and previously put my confidence in in order to know Christ. Know here, not being a kind of intellectual, knowing about being a relational word as it so often is in the Bible. Paul says, no, actually, deep knowing, deep relationship with Jesus is worth the loss of anything, worth the suffering of anything. It's very much the same sentiment that Asaph is communicating to us. And Asaph wraps up his psalm by kind of summarising the conclusion of the journey that he's been through. To behold, verse 27, but behold, those who are far from you shall perish. That's the end of the wicked. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Those words at the start of verse 28 are my favourite in the psalm, probably it's my favourite in the Bible. For me, it is good to be near God. Other people may have what seem to be easier lives. Other people may seem to thrive and flourish in relationships, romantic and sexual with people of the same sex, relationships that fall out of God's plan. Other people may seem to thrive in lifestyles that people think would be better for me, but for me, it is good to be near God. That's the wonderful truth, both now and also into eternity. And so I think there's a few key things we can draw out here. One is there's actually a real encouragement to us here. When following Jesus feels really tough, when we're acutely aware of the cost, when we are looking around at us and those kind of questions are coming to our mind, Asaph in Psalm 73 encourages us to think afresh, to look up to God, to take the long view of what is going on. When we realise what we have with God now and into eternity, we realise that anything is worth it. Maybe you're here today and what you really need to hear from this psalm is that encouragement. Maybe you are just feeling pushed down by the pressures and pain of life, struggling just to keep going even with Jesus. This morning, just receive that encouragement to look afresh to him and let him kind of reveal to you that supreme value, that supreme worth of who he is. Set your mind not just on the now, but also think into eternity. Think long term. Think the big picture and let that strengthen you, encourage you, comfort you as you seek to step forward day by day. There's an encouragement. There's also a challenge here. The challenge of are we prizing the gifts of the giver more than the giver himself? 
as it's so easy to do? Are we seeing the supreme value of God himself? Because if we're not, and if we're not deliberate about pursuing that experience, there's always this risk that actually life's circumstances in our own lives and the lives of others will kind of shake us, put us in those slippery places that Asaph talked about. And a person, as I said, that's such a challenge for me. The things that the world tell me will fulfill me and make me happy. So it's so easy for me to waste my time and my money and my energy on pursuing them. Whereas actually, I want to put all of my energy into pursuing God. And I do think that in our culture, this is such a hard challenge to receive and to live out. Because many of us will be very fortunate to have access to lots of stuff and lots of opportunities. The things we think might fulfill us, many of us will be able to access them and engage with them. And also many of us in our modern culture are living lives at a kind of pace where it's just hard to see and savour God. It's hard to stop and slow down enough to truly experience the supreme value of the giver more so than his gifts. If we want to do this, we need to make space. We need to slow down. We need to make deliberate effort for this. Asa's challenge to us is, are we going to do that? Are we going to learn to prize God as the greatest prize? I want to learn from Asaph's journey and do that. Maybe you're here today and you want to do the same. How might we do that? How might we learn and take hold of this? Well, actually, for some of us, that first step might be to make that first step of choosing to commit to following Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you've never done that. You've never said, I'm I'm turning away from my old life and choosing to seek to faithfully follow Jesus, trusting in him. This psalm, as we're seeing, is really clear. There are two types of people in this world. Things end well for one and badly for another. The bad end is what we all deserve and should get. But wonderfully, in the goodness and mercy of God, he sent his son, he sent Jesus into the world so that we can have the good end. And that is a freely offered thing to us if we will receive it through repentance, turning away from an old form of life and trusting in him, seeking to follow him. If that's you here today, don't leave here without taking the chance to find out some more. You might have come with a friend, why not talk to them? Or just find someone who looks friendly, who's running a landlord or something, one of the leaders here. People will be really happy to tell you more about what it means to follow Jesus. And if you want, to uh, pray with you as well. And what about once we're a Christian, how do we then kind of continue to grow into this? Well, notice for Asaph, the key thing was looking up from what's going on down here, up to God himself. We need to keep lifting our gaze to him. We need to focus in on him face after that happened while gathering to worship with the people of God. What we're doing here today is so vitally important. Active involvement, commitment to gathering with the people of God, commitment to putting our all into worshipping God when we're worshipping together is vitally important to experiencing all that God has for us and wants for us. What we're doing is so important. Let's keep prizing that. It always happens in our individual life, doesn't it? Actually, our deliberate seeing of God, beholding of God, through worship, through his word, coming before him day by day, so we get to see and taste and experience the goodness of the giver. Let's be people who commit ourselves to that. And so my kind of question to leave with you lingering in mind is, what does it look like for you to receive the challenge of Asaph today? What does it look like for you tomorrow morning, into this week, to be someone who's seeking to prize the giver over his gifts, who is pursuing him to see his supreme worth. As we worship now, it's just a chance for us to draw near to the one who is near to us, to express to him that desire that we would know him more and to set our gaze on him again, that he would uh, open our eyes to see that goodness. Why don't we stand, if you're willing and able to do so, as we engage with God. I'm going to pray, and the guys here will lead us as we worship. Look, we thank you that for any one of us here who's chosen to follow you, we can say with utter confidence that you are near to us. 
and that that is the supreme blessing we could ever, ever receive. It makes every trial in life, every cost of following you utterly worth it. And Lord, we're sorry when we valued your gifts more than you as the giver. We're sorry when we've gone after the wrong things and looked for fulfillment and satisfaction in the wrong places. And today we're saying we long to look to you. We long to encounter and experience you and to enjoy the blessing of life with you. Lord, even right now, would you help us to behold you afresh? And would you help us as we go from this place, Lord, to put this into practice, to live those kinds of lives that will help us to enjoy you and recognise and enjoy your supreme value. Come by your spirit now and minister this to us. Help us in this, we ask. Amen.